Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Well, you might not know that I, when I was younger, I used to love running. You probably don't know. I had forgotten about myself, so it's probably fair to assume uh, that you wouldn't have known that. My mum tells this story about when I was two years old. We went on a, on a holiday uh, to Perth, I think, and we went to the beach, and I just set off. I ran and I ran and I, I they, and they were just oh, slow down. I wouldn't stop. I ran and I ran and I ran all the way along the beach right until the end. And my love of running continued into primary school and early high school. I won the 400 metres in year six and year nine, which was one of the greatest achievements of my life, I have to say. And, um, and it was great. And then in year 10, I changed schools and I, I moved from a small pond to a very big pond and a, a big private school on the upper north shore of Sydney. And, um, and it, came day, it came for time for the athletic tryouts. So I got my little gear on and went down to the very large impending oval uh, at the school, uh, which was like a lower level and it was surrounded by these big walls around it where everybody was spectating, looking down on you. And that's where the trials were. Nice comforting setting for a nice little timid year 10 girl. And so I went for the athletics trials and there I was gearing up to, to race in the 400 metres to have a trial to see if I could be on the school athletics team. And um, so I stood there, I think I had a friend with me, and I looked around at all the other runners, most of whom were smarter and more athletic than me, smarter, faster, and maybe probably smarter too, faster and more athletic than me. And, um, and I stood there and I looked around, and then I left. I know, isn't that sad? <laughs> Poor little tent, new tent, Emily. I left, I didn't even run. I didn't even run. I looked around at these people who were faster than me, more athletic than me, who I was sure were going to beat me, and I didn't even race. I said to my friend, let's go. I know. And I got up and I left because of this thing you were talking about at the moment, comparison. There is no win in comparison, as we have been learning over the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about how we spend all our time in our lives judging ourselves making a call about ourselves depending on whether we think we're higher or lower on the various ladders that we climb compared to other people. Or there's somebody higher than me, therefore I'm going to think poorly of myself that I'm not good enough. Or there's someone lower than me and therefore I'm going to think really well of myself and, think that, and become superior. We want to have a bigger er than everybody else. I want to be smarter or faster. Clearly I thought the others were faster than me. They had a bigger er than me, so I didn't think I was very worthwhile and left with this running race. And um, Or we become superior when we think that we are better uh, than everybody else. We judge ourselves by this comparison. Uh, and, and we learned that our, that our obsession with comparison really pivots uh, on what or who we choose to use as our reference point in life to tell us whether we're okay. Is it Jesus who is our reference point, as Adrian so aptly reminded us last week? Jesus and all he has done for us. He sets our identity. He makes us a child of God and says, this is who you are. When we have that set as a given, as our point of reference for who we are as our identity, we become freed of this comparison trap that holds us back from living the life that God has created us to live. But easier said than done, right? And it's not as if there is nothing at stake. The lives that we have been given to live uh, are at stake in this. Uh, it has very real implications for our lives. There is a uniqueness to each one of us and therefore to the contribution that God has given us to make in this world. And it's very easy when we get caught in this comparison trap to take ourselves out of the race entirely, just like I did in year 10. 
Maybe for you, you see it in your career choices, or your decision of whether to go for that promotion, your relationships, expressing your personality, your use of your creativity, whether you're serving at church or volunteering in your community, comparison can take us out of the race completely and stop us from being the person that God has created us to be. Now, today's reading is an interesting one when it comes to comparison because it doesn't actually talk about comparison. I don't know if you saw that. There's nothing actually in the passage that mentions that any one of the servants knew how many bags of gold, how many talents the other servants were given. It's not actually in the passage. It doesn't mention comparison. So it's an interesting one to preach on on comparison. But the reason that we are is that it has significant implications for the way that we deal with comparison in our lives. So we're going to dive in and look at that. But first, I want to get something off my chest. And I, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes I have these thoughts when I'm reading the Bible that I feel like are not really thoughts that a pastor should have, much less voice in church. But I just need to get this off my chest. I'm going to let you in on this little one, if that's okay with you, if we can just have a little chat. I'd like to get this off my chest. When I read this passage, I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of unfair. How the, anyone else? Oh, good. All right. Okay. I'm glad. You know, usually when you think something, there's someone else in the room who thinks exactly the same thing. I think it's kind of unfair. This poor third servant, the poor guy was just afraid. And so he did what we all get told to do all the time. Give it back as it was given to you. Leave it as you found it. That's exactly what he does. Gives it back. And the poor guy is called wicked and lazy and kicked out of his master's house. Come on. He's given less than the other guys. How is that fair? Really? Good. I'm really glad you're with me. That could have gone one of two ways. That definitely went the preferable way. Thank you. Even if you just speak nice. What's going on? Under the circumstances, isn't it fair enough that he buried the treasure? Really, what's so wrong with that? Well, let me recap the story for you. We get a bit of context. Um, let's, let's pan the camera back a little bit. Here's the story. I'll fill in some of the blanks with some of the context. A wealthy man goes away on a long trip. And as he goes away, he entrusts all his wealth to, wealth to his servants uh, to look after for him while he is on his trip, to steward for him, which means to do with that money what he would have done with it if he was there. So he goes away and he leaves the money with, uh, with them. And he knows, that his, so he knows his servants, he knows and accepts their varying levels of ability. And so he divvies up his wealth according to their ability and how, their capacity to manage what different amounts of money. So he divvies up uh, his money accordingly. And his expectation is that they would trade with that money, to invest it, to put it to work. His expectation is that his servants wouldn't simply be passive recipients of his wealth, but active participants. With it. That's his expectation uh, in giving his money to his servants to trade with it because that's what he would have done. Now, trading and investment, as we know, generally carries with it some degree of risk. Uh, but nonetheless, servant A with the five bags goes out, puts the money to work and makes another five bags of gold. Servant number two or servant B does the same. He trades with his two bags and makes another two bags uh, for his master for when his master returns. Uh, but servant C, with one bag, simply keeps the money in a safe place where it remains unchanged. 
Now he digs a hole in the ground, which was a very normal, commonplace thing to do back in those days to safeguard something. It was very common to dig a hole in the ground, bury something to keep it safe. And he, he, he does that to hide, and he hides his master's money. It was considered the safest possible course of action, which would also absolve him of any liability. So he plays it safe, straight down the middle. He doesn't risk anything. And he also washes his hands of the responsibility and of the opportunity. And so his master returns and settles accounts with them, having expected them to trade with his money while he was gone. Servants A and B have doubled the money that was entrusted to them by their master, and they receive high praise for the way in which they've been responsible with what had been entrusted to them. Have a look on the screen of what the master says. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge. Oh, no, it's not up there. Sorry, my mistake. If you could just go back. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. They both get that same response. Did you notice it when we read through? Both the one with five bags and two bags. Didn't matter how much they had. What the master was interested in was their faithfulness with what they did have. They get the same response, well done, good and faithful servant. It shows us that what they had is less important than what they did with what they had. And then the master, then the master comes to servant C, who had buried his one bag of treasure in the ground, who didn't take responsibility for what had been entrusted to him. He approaches it very differently to servant A and B. Instead of talking about the money like the others had, he kicks off by insulting his master. He does what all of us do when we're trying to shirk responsibility. He blames. It's all your fault. It's all your fault. Here's what he says. Now this is on the screen. Master, he said, I know you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And here's the kicker, right? Here's the response that can feel so unfair to us. You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. In other words, translation, that I work all the angles to make the most of what I have. I work all the possible angles. Well, then, you should have, insert translation, at the very bare minimum is what he's saying. Put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest at the very least. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. It's the law that more responsibility is, uh, is given to those who are responsible with what they already have. And the law of spiritual atrophy that if you don't use something that has been given to you, it is withdrawn. Just like when we don't use physical muscles, uh, we, we lose their capacity, we lose their strength. Now, I don't know about you, but this story makes me nervous. <laughs> okay, good, nervous laughter. I'm not alone. Again, excellent, thank you. This challenges me. Why, why is it? Why does this challenge us so deeply? It's because the master represents Jesus and the servant represents me. Jesus has gone on a long trip and is coming back and will hold me to account for the life that I live. 
The money represents anything God has given me. It includes opportunities, gifts, money, influence, knowledge, health, strength, time, senses, reason, intellect, memory, affections, privileges, advantages through having a Bible, safety. Anything God has given to me that I could use to love God and love others. And the property that the servant is thrown out of for squandering the opportunity entrusted to him represents the kingdom of God. We know that because Jesus frames this up right from the beginning in verse 14. He says, it will be like the kingdom of God when Jesus returns will be like. You want to bet that makes me nervous. I don't know about you, but I want to be like the first two servants. But way too often, (laughs) I am like the third. And so, because I want to be like the first two servants, I want to know what is going on for the third to cause him to squander all that his master entrusts to him so that I might understand my own heart more fully and bring it to God for his forgiveness and his restoration. You with me? So what's going on for him? What is as clear as day, as we dig beneath the surface a little bit, is that on the surface he was not faithful with what had been entrusted to him. Why that is such a big deal is that the servant's degree of faithfulness with their master's treasure showed up their relationship with their master for what it truly was. In other words, faithfulness is an overflow of the nature of your faith. Our industriousness, as one writer put it, is a sign of our love and trust in Jesus. It's a sign of right relationship with him. Another writer said that wise and conscientious use of, use of one's God-given abilities is a responsibility that accompanies right relationship with God. And a lack of faithfulness reveals that there is something out of kilter in our faith. There's some kind of infection in there. There's something going on that's not quite right. We're out of alignment when it comes to our relationship with God. It's a symptom Now, let's be clear, this parable is not teaching that we earn our place in God's kingdom. We don't earn our place in his household through our actions. It's not teaching that at all. What it is teaching, like the book of James later in the Bible, is that faith without deeds is dead. The nature of our faith is revealed through our deeds, through our actions, through our faithfulness to what God has entrusted us with. True, healthy faith, love of God, proves itself through faithfully handling what God entrusts us with. That's life in the kingdom of God. Now, how did the master go about determining whether servant C had been faithful with what had been entrusted to him? What set him apart from the other two? what, what, What sets apart faithfulness from faithlessness? How can we know if we've been faithful to what God has put in us? Well, what gave the game away for the third servant is that he buried what had been entrusted to him. 
He hid it rather than putting it to work. Did you see that? His master had effectively given him a bag full of seed in that it was brimming with potential. It had the capacity to grow. It had the capacity to become something beautiful if the servant had simply applied himself to it, been faithful to it. But he chose the status quo. No change, no risk. Theologian Michael Green says this about this passage. It looks as though the original application of this parable, this story, was to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They did not use their responsibility well. They wanted a religion without change and without risk, and they are heartily condemned for it. The application also goes wider than the Pharisees. It applies to all who are determined to retain the status quo and to avoid risk and change in their religion, to all who refuse to trade with the responsibilities the master gives them. Thank you, Michael Green. (laughs) Some of you have buried what God has entrusted to you. Some of you, it's been buried so long, you don't even know where to begin to dig it up again. You don't even remember where, where you buried it. But some of you, God has entrusted you with a treasure that comes from him and you've buried it somewhere. It's still there, but you've buried it somewhere. I have done the same. We're in this together this morning. Why this makes me nervous is that I can see as clear as day from this passage that God is not pleased with my buried treasure. He's not pleased when his treasures that are brimming with divine potency that he entrusts to me gets buried in my life and is never put to work to achieve the purpose for which he gave it to me in the first place, to love him and love others. He's not pleased, pleased when I wash my hands of the responsibilities that he gives me. Do you follow? So why, why did the servant bury his master's treasure? Why do I? Why do we? Well, the servant says it himself in verse 25, doesn't he? I was afraid. I was afraid. He allowed himself to be paralyzed by fear. And fear led him to substitute service for security. Do you see that? He played it safe and risked no loss but achieved nothing. Some of us have this obsession with safety and certainty, don't we? Like if we do nothing, then at least we'll be safe. At least we know what the outcome's going to look like. We cling to it with all that we are and all that it gives us is a small life. 
Now, I'm not talking about safety here in terms of being out of harm's way. That's a different thing altogether. That is a priority. What I'm talking about here is stepping out and taking a risk and doing something with what God has put in your hands, his treasure that he has entrusted to you and to me. Faithfulness and safety, as in playing it safe, certainty, are mutually exclusive. Do you see that? Faithfulness involves risk, it involves faith, it involves taking a step, it involves action. Always. Every time. Another writer said that to have done no harm is praise for a stone, not a man (laughs) or a woman. He did no harm, did he, this servant? He gave it back just like he found it. (laughs) It's not good praise for a person to have done no harm. And so what was he afraid of when it comes down to it? The core of the issue here. What was he afraid of? What caused this whole thing? He was afraid of his master. Verse 24, have a look. I knew you were a hard man, so I was afraid. He was afraid because of who he believed his master to be. Wasn't he? A cruel man, a hard man, an unjust man. He believes his master to be unjust, strict, harsh, cruel, merciless. And what that belief produced in him was alienation, mistrust, and then personal sloth or laziness. Not taking responsibility for that which his master had entrusted to him. Have you seen this in your own life? You develop a narrative about somebody in your head of the way that you think that they are and then it totally affects the way that you behave towards that person? No? Just me? (laughs) All right, good. Okay. You see how this happens then? He's got this narrative in his head of what his master is like and it totally shapes the way that he behaves. In his mind, his master is cruel. He's a tyrant. It totally shapes, it leads to fear and it totally shapes the way that he applies himself to that which has been entrusted to him. He seems to believe that his master could not have tolerated his failure. And so he steers away from taking any risks at all and plays it safe. Can I ask you, what did you pick up as James read us the passage about how the other two servants seem to view their master? What do you think? It's rhetorical, but have a think. (laughs) How do they seem to view their master? It's different, isn't it? Quite different. It seems that they stewarded their treasure faithfully because they loved who the master was and they wanted to please him. You can almost feel their pride that their master would invest his treasure in them, that he would entrust his treasure into their hands to trust them to do what he would have done if he was there. 
can feel them glowing when they come back to him and say, Master, Master, look, you gave me five and I've produced five more for you. Here it is. They love their master and it is their joy to serve him because they love who he is. But they get to put his wealth to work for him. What an honour. And so could it be possible that the master is not the person that servant C believed him to be? And that the servant's lack of faithfulness actually stems from broken or incorrect beliefs about who the master is? What if he wasn't cruel? What if he wasn't harsh? What if he could have tolerated failure? What if he would have preferred him to simply have a go? What if he cared more about faithfulness? What if the master was actually so generous that he would entrust his entire wealth to his servants to take care of for him? What if his heart was actually to enrich his servants' lives by giving them the privilege of getting to steward something that came from his own resources. And side, what if we are sitting upon fields, upon fields, upon fields of buried treasure? Do you hear that? What if we have played it safe because we have believed God to be a merciless slave driver who can't tolerate our failure, rather than a generous father who loves to entrust his resources to us to love others with, to be an active participant in his mission with. Do you think that could be possible? It's a big deal the way that we view God. An extremely big deal. It shapes the whole way we live our lives. It shapes the way that we invest ourselves and take responsibility for all the many, many things that he gives to us to steward for him, to do with as he would do with them. To be active participants in his mission, to bring love to people who need love in their lives, to bring new life to brokenness around us. This whole thing pivots on who we perceive God to be, the view that we hold of him. Now, can I ask you, what do you think feeds, as in gives food to, powers up, stokes, our incorrect beliefs about who God is? so that those beliefs grow in their power to shape our lives. <laughs> Comparison. Right? It feeds our incorrect beliefs about who God is. We look around us and we see what everybody else has, what God has given to everybody else or what we perceive that God has given to everybody else. Hashtag social media. 
And all of a sudden, God's character comes into question. Right? God is cruel because my friends all have more senior jobs than I do. God is unjust because everyone around me has these great relationships. God is merciless because I don't have the money to keep up with my colleagues' fashion choices. Do you see how this works? You see why there is no win in comparison? Do you see that the more that we are caught up in this comparison trap, not only is our incorrect view of God powered up, amplified, strengthened, but we lose sight of what God has put in our hands, of what he has entrusted to us, and we become less effective in putting it into practice. We lose our grip on our responsibility because we're so busy looking at what everybody else has and trying to have a bigger er than them. What are you going to say to Jesus when he comes back and asks you, what did you do with what I gave you? What are you going to say? Oh, well, nothing because you're so stingy. <laughs> really? We have a generous father who has joyfully entrusted us with his resources, which means they have divine potential. They come from heaven. They're not just any old resources. Resources from heaven that he's entrusted to you. Divine potency brimming with potential. He joyfully entrusts them to you. Your life is brimming with divine potential. Take that one into your heart. Your life is brimming with divine potential. God has generously and abundantly filled your life with seeds of potential that are waiting to be invested in, planted and put to use for loving God and loving others. Have a look at this list again. This is what God's given you. Opportunities, gifts, money, influence, knowledge, health, strength, time, senses, reason, intellect, memory, your affections, privileges, a home, possessions. Don't tell me you don't have anything on that list. Come on now. <laughs> you carry something of the divine in your life. Now, some of you here today think that God has excluded you from this. That this is only about other people who he might have given more to. No, this is about you. This is for each one of us. As the great John Wimber used to say, everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to play. There is no insignificant role in the kingdom of God. None. Jesus is not concerned with how much you have, only with how faithful you are with what you have. God has not stopped calling you. I think someone needs to hear that this morning. God has not stopped calling you. You have a responsibility to live up to your potential and your giftedness. I get that there are times in our lives when the most faithful thing we can do with what God has given to us is to have a rest. But God has not stopped calling you and you have a responsibility across the span of your life to live up to your potential and giftedness. This is not just on everybody else, this is on you. 
This is a call for you. And God will hold you responsible for what you have done with what he's given you, not because he's a slave driver, but because of his commitment to love and generosity. Do you see that? He's on a mission to bring new life to the world around you, in and through you, through the things that he has placed in your life, in your hands. And it's his heart of love and generosity that drives him to hold us accountable as his representatives on that mission. Your master is coming back. My master, our master, Northside, is coming back and he's going to ask us what we did with what he placed in our lives, what we've grown it into. So let me ask you this morning three questions. You might want to jot these down. Firstly, what has he placed in your life? What have been the things that have been coming to mind as I've been speaking that's probably the Holy Spirit prompting you? What have been the what's one, one to three things that come to mind? What has he placed in your life? It might be a relationship, it might be a possession, it might be a talent, it might be your ability to think. Secondly, in what ways are you enjoying stewarding it? In what ways are you enjoying stewarding it? It's okay if there's a blank, by the way. It's a helpful answer to come up with. That's all right. Thirdly, Who else's life is being enriched through it? What has he placed in your life? In what ways are you enjoying stewarding it? And who else's life is being enriched through it? What are you going to say when Jesus comes back to settle the account with you, to ask you what you've made of what he's given to you? I was in Berlin about five years ago. And I met this amazing couple called John and Gail. And um, John and Gail used to be pastors. And then John had this life-threatening medical crisis. And their capacity for for ministry completely changed. Completely changed. They had much less uh, capacity to be running around and doing all kinds of things uh, for God. And um, and they came to this decision point. And they said, okay, what, what is it that God in this season has placed in our hands? What do we have? We don't have what we used to have, but what is it that we now have? We still have something. They say, okay, we love God and we love people and we're committed to showing God's love to people. That's something we have. We have a home. That's something we have. And we know how to cook. (laughs) That's something we have. And they said, okay, why why don't we simply invite people into our home And show them the love of God. That's something that we can do to steward what God has given us in this season. Rather than looking around, rather than believing that God is a tyrant because of this awful thing that's happened in their life. What is it that God has placed in our lives? How can we be faithful with it? I was lucky enough to go to their home when I was in Berlin. And um, I can tell you, as a result of them stepping into this seed of opportunity that God had given them... In stepping into their home, I have never been anywhere else in my whole life where I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that I could not set a foot outside of being loved, outside of grace. I was totally accepted. I was totally loved. I have never experienced something that is as close to what the kingdom of God must be like as in their home. 
because what I was stepping into was this seed of potential that they had invested and which had grown into an experience of what the kingdom of God is like, of what the love of God is like. Because they had simply taken their commitment to love people, their home and their ability to cook seriously. Because they had invested it and my life was changed. And all the Berliners who they invite in off the cold and suspicious streets have that same experience. What is it that God has placed in your life? And what are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your generosity. Thank you that you are not a tyrant, slave-driving God, but that you are a gracious Father who loves us, who gives good gifts to us, who invites us and gives us the privilege of being part of your mission to bring love and restoration to the world around us. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you would entrust heavenly treasures into our, our um, fragile hands, God, our broken hands. Imperfect as we are, you still entrust your heavenly treasures to us to make something with. Lord, would you help us be faithful? Would you correct our view of who you are, our beliefs about who you are, right down at the heart level, God? And God, as we choose to reject these beliefs that you are a tyrant slave driver and choose to accept instead that you are a loving and gracious father, a generous father, would our ability to take our responsibility seriously change and shift, God? All across this church, Father, I ask that buried treasures would be dug up in Jesus' name, that you would reconnect people all across this room, Father, with what you have placed in their lives, that you would put their hands back onto it, that you would reignite dreams and visions and passions right in this moment, God. We want to be your people, God, actively, not passive recipients, but active participants, God. Thank you that that's who you call us to be. We love you, God. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.